The Green Front with Betsy Rosenberg, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. around if we come together and we move quickly. Uh, we need to scale up uh, big time and there's never been more evidence of the need for that than, uh, well, just turn it on the morning news. Uh, once again, another morning of uh, devastation all across the uh, television screen. I personally watch the Today Show in the morning, CNN in the evening, and of course it's uh, tornado and twister devastation all over again. Uh, looks more like a nuclear bomb hit. Looks like Hiroshima and it's uh, most recently touching down in Oklahoma. Even Joplin, Missouri still is uh, in the news because they could get another uh, round of uh, killer tornadoes and killer almost doesn't even do it justice. Um, these are storms that are so intense they are leveling whole neighborhoods, blocks. Uh, just like there had been some major explosions. So something is going on. Not only are we seeing perhaps more tornadoes, but certainly the velocity, the ferocity is growing uh, at a frightening level. And, you know, it's easy to count up all the numbers, hundreds of people dead, uh, untold numbers of uh, homes and buildings destroyed, including a giant Walmart store in Joplin, uh, Missouri. It looks like there was just a complete massive explosion with nothing but almost looks like splinters a walmart store my god so concrete steel wood everything and everything inside these buildings is just getting completely splintered it's unbelievable the only possible silver lining in all this devastating weather and yes we cannot of course uh, make a connection between any one storm event and climate change but certainly there is a pattern you have to be completely um working for Fox News or something to not realize the connections here, to not be paying attention to not only the record snowstorms we had over the winter, but, uh, of course, the flooding uh, that we've seen in Mississippi and Alabama this spring, as well as now this rash of tornadoes and twisters, and not to mention the drought and fires uh, affecting Texas. So something is going on with our weather. It has been predicted by climate scientists, and I think people are finally going to get over debating and discussing whether it's real and get on to the solutions. And that's what we're going to talk about in our first half, because that is the next question. Okay, maybe you can hear some people almost saying, I, I give up, I believe it, it's real. Yes, the weather is getting weird and wackier by the day. Uh, but, but what are we going to do? You know, What are we going to do about climate change? How are we going to stop spewing CO2 into the atmosphere? Well, there's a fresh off, hot off the press, fresh report out from um, uh, the California Council on Science and Technology, and they have a report about how uh, California's energy future looks, the roadmap to uh, scaling up to making the transition to renewable energy sources uh, between now and 2050. We're going to speak to one of the authors of that report in just a moment, find out what is possible and what needs to happen to make that a probability, that future. In the second half, uh, going to cover another big breaking story, and that is what is going on with Chevron. You may have seen, uh, even if you don't live in the Bay Area, uh, that five activists from the Rainforest Action Network, uh, a group near and dear to my heart based here in uh, San Francisco, they managed a group of activists 
to unfurl a 50-foot banner uh, down from the uh, Richmond San Rafael Bridge. It's right near where I live. Uh, I'm going to find out uh, from someone who was uh, a part of that uh, protest action how that went, how they got away with it. And uh, we may even hear from uh, Ginger Cassidy, who's the head of the Rainforest Action Network, as we speak right now. She is inside a Chevron shareholder meeting where protesters have gathered to demand accountability from Chevron. So we're going to find out about um, some recent victories by Rainforest Action Network, including uh, perhaps something coming down today. Uh, that will be in our second half, and again, that will be uh, just uh, as it's breaking. So I want to bring you the latest here on the Green Front. That's my training in radio news, where we covered three to four stories a day, we reporters, and there's more than enough to talk about on the Green Front. So thanks for joining me. Without further delay, I'd like to uh, welcome Matt Green. Greenberg, Greenblatt, <laughs> to the Green Front. Uh, sorry, Rosenberg, Green Front, Matt. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> it's actually Jeffrey Greenblatt. Jeffrey, so Jeffrey, Jeffrey. What did I say? My God, Matt. Matt is the guy who's joining me from the Rainforest Action Network next half. Sorry. This is what happens when you're doing your own show, hosting, producing, covering breaking news, getting it all together in the last half hour before the show. Anyway, Jeff, thanks for joining me. And you're uh, thank you for the report that you've just put together that has some very interesting findings. And, um, uh, begin by telling us, first of all, just your thoughts on uh, what's happening with uh, these storms that are just uh, devastating parts of our own country. You know, this that past year, you know, last summer it was the um, droughts and fires in Russia and the epic flooding in Pakistan, and now we need not look any farther than our own borders to see, you know, what is happening in terms of extreme weather events. Right. I mean... The, the climate is definitely responding to, uh, to human intervention, in, in my opinion. I, I am not a uh, practicing climate scientist now, so, um, you know, I can't sort of give a, a professional assessment of it, but um, I've been working in the climate change um, uh, mitigation field for about 10 years. Um, uh, the bulk of the scientific evidence shows that uh, uh, human emissions of, uh, of greenhouse gases definitely have an effect on the climate system. And uh, uh, frankly, from what I've been able to uh, tell, the, the effects may be even larger than, than many scientists' models predict. So um, it's, uh, it's disturbing, but uh, I hope that it can uh, help to um, stimulate us into some action because there are ways to, to avoid the worst impacts. And I do have your name and title here. Let me make it official now and correct myself. Sure. It's Jeffrey Greenblatt, of course. You know who you are. And you are an energy analyst at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. So um, you've been studying uh, energy for a long time. That's what you do there. Uh, we're looking at, you know, the past year bringing us a perfect storm of events showing us that, uh, first of all, Mother Nature really is in charge. Secondly, that worst-case scenarios do happen. I'm speaking, of course, uh, beginning uh, just a little over a year ago with the coal mine explosion with 29 deaths, reminding us once again that that is, you know, hardly a clean and safe practice, uh, that followed by the BP oil disaster, uh, showing us again that uh, systems fail, humans fail, and uh, the outfall, outcome of that and the fallout from that still being tallied and will be for years on marine life, not to mention tourism and the fishing industry there. And then, uh, of course, the uh, what they're now calling, uh, I guess, a meltdown uh, at the... Um, nuclear plant in Japan, or at least a partial meltdown. Uh, what, what's the takeaway, Jeffrey, from all these events uh, besides what I've just mentioned? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic uh, uh, human folly. I, I have to say that uh, no human design system is perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, before I start telling you about some of the low-carbon technologies that, we're, that we've been uh, looking at the possibility for California's future, I mean, 
even they are not fail-safe either. Renewable technologies do have their downsides. Um, you know, wind turbines do kill birds. Um, solar panels uh, do obscure uh, um, uh, the sun from the ground in, in sensitive desert habitats. Um, we, as we move forward into what we hope will be a much more environmentally responsible future, we do have to acknowledge the, the negative impacts of all technologies and try our best to mitigate them. But I think and yet, that, that, that seems really kind of small in comparison to what, you know, the, the, the top three I just mentioned. Not absolutely. That, yeah, not to, not to yeah. downplay that, but sure. know, um, a few birds killed in uh, desert you know, wildlife, I mean, that is sad, but uh, we've got, uh, you know, deaths of uh, lives and livelihoods taking place because of some of the, as you say, human folly, human fallibility, uh, you know, our ever-growing thirst and hunger for oil, uh, our consumption and population trends going only up. Uh, mm -hmm. What are we to do? And I know that um, many states, many leaders, certainly in Washington, D.C., are looking to the Golden State for green advice and uh so let's jump in to what sure. you found. First, the good news. Yeah, well, the good news is that uh, we have an opportunity in California to actually chart our own future because, uh, as, as many listeners know, we have uh, often been a progressive state uh, leading in, in innovative policies, um, and we passed a landmark greenhouse gas um, uh, legislation in 2006 to try to ratchet our statewide emissions back to the 90, 1990 level. Well, it's less well known that the governor, uh, Schwarzenegger at the time, in 2005 passed an even more ambitious target to bring us down by 2050 to 80% below the 1990 level emissions. Uh, and he said this uh, as an aspirational goal, but um, some of us here at the California Council on Science and Technology decided to take it seriously and find out whether we could actually do this and if we could do it in a, in a way that was, uh, you know, sort of feasible and uh, hopefully economically tractable. Um, and uh, I think our, our findings were um, rather surprising. Um, and and before we get to that, I just have to give this aside because I've been saying it to my friends when people ask me what do I think about Schwarzenegger's personal problems. Not going to get into that dirt. Don't worry. We're going to talk about dirty fuels, not dirty uh, personalized. But um, it is kind of unfortunate because he really has uh, become a bit of a hero, you know, in the um, climate community. I went to a couple of his climate summits, and uh, I remember being so impressed with not only you know the size of the crowd that gathered for that uh, conference in Los Angeles, but the nature of the attendees. You know, it was diplomats from around the world, and you know someone like you know Schwarzenegger with his clout could attract that. And the fact that he was a Republican, he is the guy who inspired the Hummer, and that he had such an eco U-turn. I always pointed to as a great example. It's that's my um, disappointment, really. That I hope it doesn't tarnish his you know uh, success record and his commitment to uh, reversing climate change because I, I think he's genuinely passionate about that. But I you agree. About his personal passions, uh, we, we'll just leave it at that. So um, go ahead to uh, tell us what you found in terms of um, the, the promising news, I guess, is that we're already engaged in some of these cleaner practices, but, of course, the giant challenge is uh, scaling it up and quickly. Right. I mean, basically, there's, there's a big difference between reducing our emissions uh, back to the 1990 level, which is approximately a 25% reduction from where we would be headed in 2020. That's the year at which uh, we have to get to that uh, target. And it's quite another thing to take it from the 1990 level down another 80%. Um, you know, to, to accomplish this, and, and the, I should start by saying we did our model for the state of California because that was our scope and our mandate. 
certainly a lot of, their, of our results are applicable to um, other parts of the country and, frankly, internationally. The results will be somewhat different because California has a unique set of resources and, uh, and constraints. But, uh, you know, if, if we can uh, sort of chart a path uh, here, uh, many other people could do a similar uh, sort, of, uh, sort of pathway setting uh, elsewhere. So I think that it, it does hold a lot of hope for, uh, for other parts of the world. Um, Will we have to wait till fossil fuel, you know, just the supply dwindles, or can we not afford to do that? And uh, we need to really start making that, reverse that trend right now in terms of two renewable energy sources. Uh, we, you know, many feel we um, are at peak oil, if not past it. What's your view of that? Yeah, we really can't wait for uh, the price uh, the price increases to take care of the problem itself. Uh, we have to be proactive um, because, unfortunately, there's still a whole lot of oil and natural gas in the ground that we will burn unless policy tells us to do otherwise. It's it's cheap, it's convenient, and unfortunately, it's also adding to uh, our greenhouse gas burden in the atmosphere. And so, what we found is to to get down to the very ambitious levels that we're that we're hoping to reach in the next four decades, we have to do four things. The first is we have to hit efficiency as hard as is uh, feasible in all areas, not just um, screwing in light bulbs, obviously, but uh, really looking at the entire building as a system and finding whatever ways are uh, economical to uh, to reduce the the uh, the energy use for heating and cooling, lighting, as well as the use of appliances and in uh, in businesses, uh, all sorts of other uh, commercial and industrial equipment. Um, there's there's great potential for efficiency improvements as well as for uh, more efficient uh, logistics in order to use use what we have not only um, um, uh, with the equipment being more efficient but also using them more thriftily using them less uh, using the right sized components and uh, and uh, capacities so that's one is efficiency and I shouldn't uh, forget the important transportation sector as well fuel efficiency can be greatly greatly improved in uh, across all all different transportation modes the second is actually to move away from using fuels directly um, and toward using electricity as an indirect fuel because it can be uh, low carbon much more easily than a than a fuel as I'll get into in a moment so our second uh, solution is electrification uh, and that's more than just uh, plugging in cars. It's also uh, looking at other parts of the transportation sector to run on electricity like buses and trains as well as um, switching to heat pumps and other efficient uh, forms of electric-based electric heat in buildings. Um, the other two parts of our uh, solution have to do with uh, decarbonizing the, the fuel and electricity system uh, itself, but I'll, I'll pause if you want to ask a question, Betsy. Well, uh, yeah, I, I have several questions, but uh, why don't you go through that list, um, and then I'll just jump in because uh, it could go a lot of different directions here. Sure, sure, and I wanted to get to the, your first question about uh, petroleum and, you know, what are we going to do about the fuel. So, uh, fortunately, there are a lot of ways of making electricity that's virtually without carbon emissions. Um, uh, renewables as a, uh, as a portfolio of technologies, uh, we have on our, our legislative uh, books now a 33% renewable target by 2020, which we hope can be expanded beyond that. Um, we have assessed the resources in both in California and in neighboring states that could be imported, and we think that uh, there's plenty of renewable capacity, solar, wind, geothermal, uh, some hydro, some offshore uh, marine uh, power to supply all of our electricity needs, even as we essentially double the uh, 
requirements for electricity uh, in an expanded population where we're using more electricity as a proportion of, of energy than we are today. Um, and then besides uh, renewables, there are other ways of making electricity without uh, carbon emissions. There's, there's nuclear power. There's also capturing the carbon dioxide from fossil fuel plants. They come with their own sets of, of, of issues, but I just want to put those on the table as other options. Um, essentially get rid of the carbon emissions from the electricity sector with some caveats that I'll get into. And then the last thing is what do we do about the fuels? It turns out switching to biofuels, uh, while a great idea and is something that we should do as much as is, is practicable and that we can certainly license, turns out that supplies of biomass uh, are probably limited. And so we are going to be left with an inadequate supply to, to distill the fossil fuels that, uh, that we would still probably need in the state in, in 2050. But um, we can greatly reduce our dependencies, and uh, hopefully we can come up with some innovative breakthroughs that can actually replace them all together. Um, but the combination of these four strategies, doing as much efficiency, electrification, reducing the carbon footprint from the electricity sector, and then using biomass as much as possible to replace fuels almost all the way to, the, to our 80% target. If we do what? What do we need to do to scale this up to make this a reality? Well, yeah, well, the, the good news is that we actually have a pretty complementary suite of policies in place in California that, that give us the levers that we need to, to steer our economy in this direction. They're not um, aggressive enough um, and so ratcheted down in terms of how stringent uh, the, the carbon footprint of the, of the various uh, pieces need to be, but we have a low-carbon fuel standard. That we have a low-carbon imported electricity standard. Uh, we have a statewide target. Um, we have rules about uh, indirect carbon emissions that, that arise from urban planning and sprawl, um, as well as a number of other tools uh, on the legislative books. And through a combination of, of uh, you know, it's essentially political will, if we use these tools wisely and add additional levers, smaller levers, where necessary, I think that we can develop a set of policies that will guide us in that direction. And, and we think that most of the technology that we need is actually already in place or will soon be in place with some, with some additional cost, cost reductions. There are a few places where additional innovation is going to be needed in order to get us all the way to our target, but we have a really good starting point, and, and really we just need to get started. And you, you say in um, the introduction to the wrap-up of this report, at least what I'm reading on your website, that mm -hmm. we'll need, as you said, um, to have the, the really the societal shift. Uh, there needs to be demand on the part of Americans, does there not, to really create these greener policies quickly because there's less than 40 years to make this wholesale turnaround. Yeah. And, you know, we... <laughs> We have this climate change problem, which is getting worse by the day. Uh, if, you know, we can look at the weather for any indication, and some would argue we should. Uh, Bill McKibben, by the way, has a fabulous article. I don't know if you saw it yet, but 350.org. Uh, it's mm -hmm. about, um, you know, dare we connect the dots. I think we should. Yes, so we let's should. just assume, assume for a minute climate change is behind these uh, more devastating, destructive uh, weather events. Uh, we, we have no time to spare. And, of course, when you understand how long, you know, CO2 is in the atmosphere, it's not like we're going to, you know, start to turn the ship around and feel it immediately. So uh, with CO2 in the air at 50, 100 years or more, um, how optimistic are you that we're, 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 not, we're not doing it yet? You know, we're we're just, not. Think, yeah, we've got some good starting points, but I would say we're in the first mile of a thousand-mile journey, you know. Um, 
I I remain optimistic because I I look around you know my my technical and scientific assessments of what needs to be done to get there, and I say to myself, uh, we can do this. You know, it is not impossible. What we need is a clear political direction, and and we need to be proactive and get started immediately, as you said, Betsy. Um, I think on the part of the ordinary citizen, there are things that we can do to to choose a greener lifestyle and reduce our consumption, but there's only so much that an individual can do to change the problem him or herself. It's it's not our own responsibility to to take you know to to uh, turn this around, but I think that we do as a as a collective um, uh, society to be able to uh, vote for and support politicians who are willing to stick their necks out even if there are short-term costs that come with it, uh, because clearly there's a lot of uh, capital investment that needs to happen in, in changing our energy system from what it was into a, a more green uh, future. And uh, while there are certainly some, some ways of making that financial gap uh, more feasible, um, there's going to be some short-term um, risk and uh, challenge there. And uh, we can't say we want a green future, but we don't want to pay a cent more for it. You know, that just, uh, that just doesn't work. Um. <laughs> right, and I, I say the future is green or not at all a lot and yeah. um, put that on my signature often and uh, lately been preceding that by, you know, as the glaciers melt, as the storms swirl, as the rivers rise, as the tornadoes kill. I mean, goodness gracious. And, and yet, if you look politically at what's going on, um, you know, it's too bad that we have to go back to politics and go back to D.C. in all these conversations. But with some 30 members of the Tea Party, you know, getting voted into mm-hmm. Congress last November, uh, I don't think any of them seem to think that climate change is a real threat or have any ideas for what to do about it. That's kind of scary that, you know, you think it'd be all hands on deck. And, and what I've been talking about is maybe we need to have a green tea party, one that says, you know, not only here's how to green your routine so you can make a difference as an individual, as a community, and have house parties where we sip green tea and talk about the solutions. <laughs> um, but uh, and, and last but not least, number 10 on that list of 10 things that you can do would be vote for the greenest candidate in your party because we cannot afford to have legislators who don't understand these uh, complex and urgent problems. And, right. and yet that'll, next, that general election is, um, you know, a little over, what, a year and a half from now, a little less. Uh, so we, I guess we better get out. I better stop talking about this Green Tea Party and uh, get it out there because that's, I think, could be, it, it should be, the uh, wedge issue of our time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have um, too much more to, to say about sort of the optimal political strategy there because I'm, I'm not a political strategist. I am concerned about the impasse that we see in Washington about people dragging their feet, essentially, you know, just buying time so that we can continue to do business as usual and uh, and not fix the problem. And uh, it it um, it perpetuates a uh, a status quo that unfortunately has a very long half life. Um, I mean, getting back to one of the things you were saying earlier, if you don't mind me uh, um, uh, sort of refocusing. Um, no, please. I, you know, I just, uh, you know, I, every week the, the news gets worse on the climate front or the indications that it's real and here, and, and yet we just don't see movement in Washington. And any day now they're going to wake up and smell the carbon, right? But once right. they do, they're going to be looking to you guys and saying, okay, okay, like almost holding up the white flag. We surrender. Here's the green flag. Tell us. What do we do? I think that there is a great hunger to see some realistic pathways forward, and there are uh, some who look at the problem and they say we can only do a small amount and anything else would be woefully expensive. And, 
you know, I think it's the assessment of our of our um, committee that uh, that's that's not realistic. That we can certainly go a lot further, and maybe we can go all the way uh, to it in using a healthy dose of innovation and 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 some luck, and obviously government uh, backed uh, you know sort of research investment and and so on. Um, we can actually march forward, and I think that maybe the the change is not going to happen at the national level first. It's going to happen at the states and at the city level, where there are fewer uh, opinions to uh, to to change, um, and that's why I'm feeling relatively confident that uh, you know. Obviously, if, even if California achieves this target and nobody else does, it's not going to make much of a difference for climate change physically. But politically, it's going to make a huge difference because it will, it will change a lot of minds uh, elsewhere where uh, people don't think that it's really possible. And so that's why I think that, the, that this study and this opportunity is so important. Um, I was just going to answer the uh, or, or make a point about the uh, longevity of greenhouse gases and connect that to the longevity of our human-made uh, goods, and that is things like cars and uh, uh, refrigerators and homes and things. You know, they have a long half-life, too. Uh, if carbon lasts 100 years in the atmosphere, a building lasts nearly that long, a vehicle is usually on the road for 20 years, appliances last tw- 10 to 20 years or more, and that's the other reason why we have to get started. Not my toasters. <laughs> my toasters <laughs> they don't last long, huh? <laughs> well, you know, planned obsolescence can actually be a good thing. Uh, I hate to say uh, to hear myself say it, but uh, if if it helps to hasten uh, more the uh, you know the acceptance of more efficient products and to have things changed changed in um, the marketplace more rapidly, that's great. Of course, I don't like the waste that comes with it, and of course the right. embedded energy. But um, it's it's important that we make these changes uh, as quickly as possible because a lot of the products that we're using are still going to be on our shelves a couple of decades from now, efficient okay. or not. Uh, we have about five more minutes, and I, yes. I cannot end this interview before we talk about um, the big uh, elephant in the room, and that's nuclear, <laughs> nuclear, oh. as uh, Bush used to say. Uh, after Japan, what's the takeaway lesson on that? Is that uh, we have not figured out what to do with the waste. We have seen what worst-case scenarios can do, and it wasn't even worst, worst, worst-case scenario, but close enough. Right. Uh, and uh, at least in Europe, they're saying forget it. Germany is, you know, we're not going there. France is, I guess, fully committed, but what's the takeaway message for us here in America? As, well, you know, we there had are a lot of... Out there. I want to start by saying we had uh, a number of nuclear experts on our committee, and so we were able to, to uh, hear and, uh, you know, digest a wide range of opinions. Uh, speaking on behalf of the committee, I would say, you know, it's not time to throw nuclear out the window. Uh, it has a lot to speak for it. It also has a lot of great great uh, concern, and certainly after the disaster in Japan, I think that nuclear is going to be much uh, challenged to really prove itself as a safe and viable alternative. But the truth is that it is a mature technology that delivers virtually zero carbon electricity um, and that it has a fairly um, uh, you know, robust safety history in the United States if you discount one particularly bad uh, accident almost, um, what is it, 30 years ago now at Three Mile Island. But uh, it's been very safe since then. And so uh, it's true we do not have a permanent solution for nuclear waste. I think that the, the, the biggest challenge actually is whether the public is going to accept an expansion of nuclear power in this country. Um, it's certainly a concern in other countries as far as introducing nuclear power because of the weapons uh, danger that comes with a, uh, a nuclear fuel cycle industry. Um, 
And so it's complex, and uh, I don't think that one can say categorically it's off yet, but uh, it certainly has a lot to uh, to answer for with these recent uh, recent events in Japan and elsewhere. So, okay, a couple more questions, and they are sure. big ones, I know, um, and you don't have to answer in thirty seconds, but you know, take a, a minute or two on each. Um, Peak oil, I mentioned that we seem to be there or past it. What's your sense of that? I've heard some speakers from the Peak Oil uh, Institute or Post-Peak Carbon Institute, mm. and uh, they're pretty dark in terms of their forecast. Um, and, and, of course, the second half of oil exploration and development and retrieval will not be as clean and cheap as yeah. we've seen before. Uh, what's your sense of that? And then my last question would just be about, you know, what percentage, you know, are we about what percentage is solar of our total energy mix right now in this country and how last I heard it was one to two percent still a small mm. amount uh, how scalable is that in the near term sure I can take on both of those um, so I don't have an opinion about peak oil because I have not researched that topic in depth um, speaking personally I do believe that the price of oil is going to continue to rise uh, supplies are dwindling um, I do think however that if the rest of the world tries to follow our, our lead here in California and um, reduce their dependence on oil by making the devices that use it more efficient and trying to switch to electric-based uh, propulsion and heating as much as possible, we can stretch out the supply and perhaps um, uh, reduce quite so much of the demand pressure that we feel now. Um, you know, it's a hard problem. I think that without a technical breakthrough, we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place because, as I said, I don't think that the biofuels are really going to be adequate to replace all of our liquid and gaseous hydrocarbon fuel needs in the in the next few decades. So we might be stuck with petroleum and natural gas for a while, but hopefully a, a, a dwindling percentage of our total energy consumption, not a growing percentage. Well, if we are going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place, I hope we won't be stuck in Iraq and Afghanistan forever. Yeah, I hope not, too. I mean, it certainly comes with a lot of political um, challenges to continue to be uh, dependent in this way, and that's that's, that's obviously another the, reason. The Go huge ahead. costs that we're spending just to be there when we should be putting it all into, you know, making this transition. Uh, and, and solar, geothermal, um, wind, uh, is that something we really should be sinking so many resources into quickly? I believe I believe we should. I mean, renewables comes with their own challenges, and, the, and what I didn't touch on earlier, but I'll just say briefly now that because of their intermittency, it does come with a higher uh, challenge in order to manage a grid that is now largely dependent on a power source that fluctuates. So we have to have a, the technology available to be able to meet supply and demand at every instant, and that's not the type of system that we have now. Well, we have it, but it's based on natural gas turbines, and unfortunately, that also emits greenhouse gases, so we have to have low-carbon ways of dealing with the intermittency, but um, there's plenty of supply, and in our scenario, I believe that we looked at solar maybe representing up to a third of, of total energy production in California in 2050, so I think that uh, if prices continue to fall with solar, it will have a bright future. And so your report, I see here, took about two years to compile. Uh, did you have the Japanese disaster, you know, in mind as you concluded your summaries, or did that happen after it was put to press? No, it actually uh, conveniently came just before we went to press, and so we were able to incorporate the, uh, you know, the thinking and the aftermath of that, uh, of that uh, terrible disaster in, in the report. And, Jeff, uh, California's energy future, the view to 2050, where is that report available if anybody wants to uh, view it and learn that um, 
the answer uh, is uh, not um, a single bullet. It's a bunch of buckshot, to quote Al Gore. That's right. Um, people can just go to ccst.us, and they can find find a link to the to the report there. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Jeffrey Greenblatt, an energy analyst at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory just across the bay here in San Francisco Bay Area. Glad to know you're doing this work and um, hope it uh, gets out there to the people who need to start putting some of these policies into action. That's it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And when we come back after a brief break, we're going to be checking in with the folks at the Rainforest Action Network uh, who have been very busy, not only with a protest on one of the local bridges here a couple of days ago, but also a big Chevron shareholder meeting still underway. We're going to get uh, the latest on that, so uh, don't go anywhere. Be right back. You're listening to The Green Front. I'm your host, Betsy Rosenberg. There's no reason anybody's got to take a phone. 